Corporation, Competition and Copyright, How Economic Theories and Halakha Interact. This is an iteration or a recreation of the shiur I gave uh, yesterday, August 13, 2022, on Shabbat at Congregation on Shei Shalom B'nai Israel as part of a Scholar and Resident Weekend focused on copyright law. Uh, the structure of the shiur is to take four areas of halakha and each of them show how both um, past and present positions um, are better understood or perhaps only understood if one also understands the economic theories um, associated with the issues. Um, and at the same time, that one should not simply reduce halakha to those positions. Uh, I began this year by noting uh, somewhat ruefully that um, in packing for the weekend, I had accidentally packed two right shoes, only one of which was mine. And that therefore I thought I would give a very brief shear, uh, teaching the entire Torah standing on one leg, uh, what is hateful unto you, do not do unto others, all the rest is commentary. And I use that to make the point is that in discussions of halakha, we often don't have clarity about the role of ends. Um, we might just say that we do halakha purely as a discussion of means, and the statement, all the rest is commentary, is just a faith statement. Whatever emerges, we have faith that it will be consistent with or in furtherance of the idea or the hateful unto you do not do unto others. But another way of reading it would be to say that if it's a test, what, uh, whenever you've, you've done, gone through the halakha and the result seems inconsistent with the idea that this halakha is a commentary on that principle, then you must have done it wrong. I think the truth is somewhere in between, um, that, you have, that you can't um, base yourself purely on ends and at the same time that you can't ignore ends. But it's very important to clarify uh, when you're talking about means and when you're talking about ends, and I hope that will become clear in the course of this year. And at the end of the year, you can ask yourself whether um, the relationship between the shear and Madalach Sami is purely a matter of faith, or whether, in fact, uh, the shear would survive if that were the test. Okay, we're going to start with corporations. Corporations are a, um, a great puzzle in halakha. Um, it's important to note that um, the yeah, the notion that corporations are a good thing, which is largely assumed in today's capitalist society, although we'll see that there is still that the con- controversy is quite uh, quite um, recent and perhaps even ongoing. Uh, but really, until the nineteenth um, century, people thought that corporations were a moral hazard in principle. I mean, limited liability corporations, where you can limit your risk but yet have um, the potential of infinite reward. Now, it's true that even in full liability uh, situations, your risk is limited to what you possess in principle, but you also could suffer uh, imprisonment when there was debtor's prison and social shame and all that. And corporations really uh, changed the risk-reward ratio dramatically in ways which people argued correctly uh, has the potential to lead to bubbles, but just, you know, a fundamental principle of fairness. Uh, Is it a good thing to to shift the risk-reward ratio uh, that way. So it's important to understand that as background, that the, the notion of a corporation as an acceptable uh, phenomenon is morally, is fairly recent, and therefore it's perfectly understandable that Halakha really was not ready to, um, or had no pre-prepared mode of dealing with a corporation in a society where it's assumed as an important um, pillar of society. And we could have taken the stance that we just deny its existence, um, we could still take the stance, and you can read um, the writings of my teacher, Rabbi J. David Bleich, in, in this regard, for instance, and say that to the extent that halakha governs interactions between individuals and corporations, that we see the corporate we see corporations simply as aggregates of as partnerships in which all this, despite the agreement, all the partnerships are uh, all the partners are personally liable for the debts of the corporation. Um, we could say that right. We could say that we that we think this halakhically, but in practice we don't do it because din malchus adina. Um, or we could say that you know actually we need to develop halakhic mechanisms for dealing with corporations. In the interim, there are ways in which it would it matters a great deal whether we see this or how we construct the ownership of a corporation. Um, I think the example that people are most familiar with is: Do you have to sell your shares in any corporation that owns any amount of chametz on Pesach? we're going to be doing is one shuva of Moshe Feinstein and then uh, one shuva of Usher Weiss. Uh, they come to very different conclusions. We should say up front 
Rabbi Weiss's presentation of Rabbi Feinstein's position does not seem to me entirely um, entirely correct, although I don't think it affects our argument much, but I think, I think it was Josh Goodman in the, at ASBI who um, correctly uh, pointed this out, even though I hadn't mentioned it in the shir. Um, but we're going to focus, right, really our purpose is uh, Rav Moshe is going to prevent, going to be a sort of a model of what it would what it would be like to treat corporations with existing tools. Rav Asher Weiss says something radical, and we'll try and see if we can understand what Rav Asher Weiss says. So here's Igris Moshe Evan Ezer uh, Alev Zion. This is written to Rav Nachman Yosef Goldstein, the Gona of Beitin of Montreal, in 1960. Um, and the question is, uh, is it legitimate to buy shares in companies that do work in business on Shabbat? So he's not dealing with the Pesach question, he's dealing with the Shabbat question. Can you benefit from work done um, on Shabbat, uh, even though uh, you have not done some right? You you have not found some way of, of, of formally separating yourself from the profits of the business um, on Shabbat, and also entirely possible that there are Jewish employees who are producing profits. So Moshe's first line um, about this is he says, We see that this has spread. For permission. So is a really interesting phrase. My best sense of it is that Moshe is saying that here popular practice has gotten ahead of Psaq. Um, there hasn't been authoritative Psaq saying you can do this, but lots of people are doing it. And the bias of postkim should therefore be to validate the intuition of, uh, of the uh, Klal Yisrael, and particularly of, the obser- of observing Klal Yisrael, rather than oppose it. But in this case, he says, not only that, the reason is obvious. We should not consider those who buy a share, which is just a smidgen of the business, um, and the buyers have no say um, in, the, in, in the business. Um, there's no reason we should consider them, Leave Ali, and we should, not consider, uh, we should not consider them the owners of shares as owners, because it's not like a halachic partnership where every partner has a say, like owners, in the, uh, in the business. And furthermore, he says, the people who buy shares don't want to really be owners of the business. They're not trying to buy any of the business. Rather, if you ask them what they're trying to do, what they're really trying to do is buy a share of whatever profits or losses the business, uh, the business produces. They're not actually interested in, uh, in exercising any control. They're betting on other people's control. Um, okay. And furthermore, he says, it seems likely that um, halakhically this is not acquisition at all. Because it is acquisition of right at the time that they um, that they buy this, um, it's like a davashol. It's like a davashol baliolam. So really, the only way you can buy this, um, since you're not you're not buying anything real, um, you're just buying you're buying a share of future profits. Uh, with that, right? So really, it's only ownership under the Malchusadina, and we're gonna not get into the trouble of right of how halacha separates these forms of ownership, which again comes up. Um, most prominently in the context of Balyiran, um the the prohibitions against owning or against having responsibility for chametz on Pesach. Um, he says, as to the terms of the sale, giving the buyer a say in the election of the president of the corporation, this is mere word dressing, because in practice, Chemesha says, even though they sell you shares, they leave themselves more than the majority of the voting shares, and therefore, shareholder, even though it's formally a democracy. Shareholders in practice have no say, and they don't really want to say. Their intention isn't to buy this right to elect the president. Okay, there's a lot of arguments, all of which are sort of on the margins of formal arguments. What does it matter whether you intend to buy it if you actually have, if you actually, if you actually have the the right to um, to elect the president? How do we conf- how do we you know think of democracies in which there is what seems to be a permanent majority? But of course, the whole nature of democracy is that the um, is that people could essentially shift votes. All interesting questions, but at the end of it, um, what matters for Moshe halachically, which is what's going to matter to us, he says, um, in his right, Lanius Dato, there is no reason to be concerned for what the owners of the companies do, because what the owners of the company do has no relevance to the shareholders. There's no connection. Why? Right. And so we don't consider a shareholder as assisting the hands of transgressors, even if the owners are, even if the owners are the the owners of the majority of shares, I guess, are Jews. And are doing things are doing things that are usher, it doesn't matter. The Jews are not contributing anyway because if the Jews refuse to buy the shares, they would do exactly the same thing. Um, 
and it comes back to popular practice. There's nothing prohibited about this at all, as we see many Jews, including those who are Yerechet, as fearers of sin, buying shares. Then he adds in a qualification. However, certainly to buy so many shares that they would consider the buyer's opinions, this should be forbidden even with regard to non-Jewish factories and businesses, because the buyer did not make the stipulations necessary when a Jew partners with a Gentile, which are set out in Orechaim, Shulchan Aruch Orechaim 3, 4, 5. Um, okay, so in the end, Rav Moshe says, right, that fundamentally this is a partnership. It's just when your share in the partnership is so small, and he has a whole, and you, right, it's so, there's no realistic way for you to actually participate in the running of the business because you're only one shareholder, uh, then we don't, and and because it's not really a halachic ownership, it's only dina and lachus dina ownership, and because there's nothing you could do to change the behavior, all these arguments, each of which are intuitively reasonable, but formally extremely weak, add up to saying that if you don't have enough shares to have influence, then you don't have to worry about it. But as soon as you have enough sh- enough shares to have influence, then you can't be a partner in Malachit Shabbat, um, and you have to engage in the same the same contract that uh, you engage in if you run you know any kind of business in partnership with a non Jewish is open on Shabbat, which is you sign a you you have to sign a contract that formally assigns all the Shabbat profits to the non Jewish partner, um, and therefore you don't benefit from it. And so really, Rav Moshe says this fundamentally, right? Uh, the, a, a corporation is a partnership. It's just that there can be partners whose share is so small that they are not considered part of the owning partners. But essentially, right, whoever owns the majority of the shares owns the business. Okay. Um, there's nothing... Uh, right, Hamosha's whole creativity is not about the corporation at all. His creativity is, about, right, is, is, uh, is limited to trying to make a claim that there's a point at which being a partner is not really a partner. If you want an analogy, I didn't use this um, yesterday, but I, I always like quoting the uh, the question of whether um, chametz, you know, if if one Jew throws uh, one piece of chametz into a reservoir, um, I mean, this is the, the Shiloh came up in Israel, right? Throw it into, into the Kinneret on Pesach. So now it's it's chametz on Pesach, which is not batil. Afilu Be'alev is not but there's no standard of Bezal. And theoretically, once it's been in the water for 24 hours, it's it spreads throughout the whole water system. So we're going to answer the entire water system because there's no Bezal and there's Chameis. There's Tam of Chameis in it. So the answer is, generally, there are a number of shows, but I, th- I think the answer which is given by the Sicily Ezra, I usually get it wrong, but I hope I get it right this time. The Sicily Ezra is that, you know, there's not Bezal, and then at some point it's just ridiculous. That's right, That just doesn't count at all. Um, so Ramosha is trying to make an argument like that about individual shareholders. Uh, individual shareholders don't matter at all, and therefore they're not really partners. The corporation is still a partnership, but they're not really partners. By contrast, let's take a look at um, Rav Asher Weiss in Chaminchat Asher, Chelek Aleph, I believe, Kuf Hei Bekuf Bav. The question is the status of a limited liability corporation in Halakha. And the question is, regarding your question as to whether it's permitted to acquire the majority of the voting shares in a bank in the United States, right? Weiss, I think, uh, has uh, commented himself that there's uh, something telling about the fact that uh, Igor Moshe deals with the question of whether you can buy individual shares in some kind of um, corporation that does business on Shabbat. could be a very small corporation, whereas here we're talking about buying the majority of shares in a bank. So plainly, the economic uh, situation of the people asking the question is very different. Um, this doesn't mean that um, that postgame trim their answers to um, to meet the audience so much as the um, Shilas are asked by people to the postgame whom they see as more likely to give the answers that they want, I think, um, although the answers they want are not necessarily like hell, um, but it means that, um, prob- that the perspective from which the questions are asked has real influence on what sort of answers dominate the sphere of halakha, and so if the questions begin being asked more by the people who are interested in acquiring controlling ownership of companies than people who are interested in acquiring shares, that will the Mela um, have an impact. And one must credit um, Weiss for being conscious of this and um, thereby probably diminishing the extent of the, the way uh, in which the shift in the economic uh, position 
of the Orthodox community affects the um, affects the outcomes. Um, in any case, um, so the question is: Can you acquire the majority of the voting shares in a bank when a percentage of the borrowers are Jewish? So it turns out apparently that the majority shareholder is lending at at interest, right? Giving uh, taking ribbits from Jews. Um, and also the same thing would be true in terms of borrowing um, an interest from Jews in terms of the, uh, if it's a bank that takes deposits. Ray Weiss says that the foundation of this question is embedded in classifying the halachic status of the modern economic body called the limited or limited liability corporation, because as we come to classify from halachic perspective who is considered the owner of this body, we stand before a great difficulty, because in general, human ownership over something of value is expressed in three ways. One, a financial right to the profits that emerge from this thing of value, just as the owner of a tree eats its fruits, so to the owner of, of money has a right to its profits. Uh, B, a right to determine the way in which the thing of value is used. And C, a right to transfer the, or sell the thing of value to someone else. Um, Ray Weiss claims that in a corporation of the sort we're dealing with, these three rights are divided among three authorities, the shareholders, the board of directors, and the general manager, who I think is equivalent to the CEO. The shareholders exclusively have the financial rights in the corporation. This right is expressed in their receipt of dividends from the profits of the corporation in the course of its activities, and in their ownership of the assets of the corporation should it be disbanded. Right? So that's the what shareholders have, dividends and a right to assets uh, in, the, in the case the corporation is uh, broken up. The day-to-day -day management is under the exclusive authority of the CEO, and the CEO is not a mere agent of the directors because they have no authority to manage the corporation, and anything which a person cannot do, they can't appoint a shliach or agent halachically to do. So since the directors do not have the authority to manage the corporation, the um, CEO cannot just be the agent of the directors. The directors do have the authority to appoint the CEO in other senior positions, and they establish the general policies of the corporation and its methods of operation, and this includes the sale of property under, uh, under its ownership. Right? Why is going to argue that, that they have at least part of C, a right to transfer or sell the thing of value someone else, um, right, so they, that's, that was his C, but a right to determine the ways in which the thing of value is used, that's only the CEO, and the right to the profits, that is only the shareholders, so ownership is, uh, ownership is divided, the right to dissolve it is the exclusive purview of the shareholders, so you see that, char that characteristics of ownership in a corporation are divided among three different authorities, aside from that he says, of course, there's also the fact that the shareholders have only limited liability. So now he says, according to modern um, law, the corporation is an independent legal and economic person. Um, and I think this is written before uh, Citizens United, but, um, but you can hear resonances of that uh, there. Um, the corporation is an independent legal and economic person, and none of the three authorities is considered an owner. So this is a huge chiddush. Right? The shareholders aren't owners because they only have a right to the profits. The, um, the directors aren't owners because they don't have a right to the profits and they don't have a right to set broad policies. They only have a right to, sorry, the directors only have a right to set policies, not to manage. And the CEO isn't the owner because he only has a right uh, to manage it. Um, he said, now Rabbi Weiss says that he understands that Rav Moshe made, took the position that the shareholders are the legal owners, as we saw, um, but that he extremely creatively said that only those who hold the majority of shares are considered owners. Owners of a minority are not considered as owners because, in practice, they have no say and influence on corporate matters. Uh, we saw that Rav Moshe doesn't actually require a majority to create the issue. It's just enough uh, shares that, that you have some kind of say in the policies of the corporation, and we can then debate over whether, you know, to what ex whether and to what extent minorities have a share in the corporation. Um, but I think Rabbi Weiss's rejection of this is right replies to what Rav Moshe actually said as well. Lanius uh, Dati, in my humble opinion, this is very unlikely reasoning and my heart cannot be reconciled to it because it is implausible that owners of the same rights, namely shareholders, when they contract among themselves and become a majority, then it's magically they're owners. When the wheel turns and they find themselves in the minority, even though they have the same rights, since their influence is gone, they're no longer categorized as owners um, because influence is not what generates ownership. So let's take a step back from this position of Ray Weiss. His rejection of Moshe is uh, reasonable, although not necessarily compelling. It depends on whether you think that you can actually make this claim that there's a point at which something is really bottled, so in the same way that if you had all of a sudden, you know, a, giant, a whole loaf of bread, that might really be a problem even when a crumb is not, uh, even though there's no numerical statement saying you're bottled X. So we can say that, you know, shares combine at some point. 
Um, but we can also not say that. So his rejection of Moshe is certainly um, reasonable. It's his own position that's really quite astonishing. I put this to the audience at uh, ASBI, and I put it to, uh, I can tell you what happened when uh, Rabbi Chaim Jachter came to, and presented Rabbi Weiss's position uh, at the Sarim Bet Midrash. Um, we just looked at it and said, wow, that's just totally wild. It seems obvious to us that, uh, in fact, uh, right, Rabbi Weiss is using a legal slate of hand to, um, to make a claim that is utterly implausible, uh, like the claim that the director can't be the shliach of the director's... Okay, halachically, you can't be a shliach, but reality, what you are is an agent, you're appointed by it. And I think the way that everyone in the audience and the way that everyone in the Sarim Bet Midrash and the way that I took this, uh, understood reality to be when Rabbi Jachter presented this is that corporations are owned by their shareholders, their shareholders elect the board of directors, the board of directors appoint the... Uh, appoint the CEO, and this is not different than any other uh, um, system. You know, any large operation is going to have delegation of authority. But there's really no reason whatsoever to say that the corporation is not owned by the shareholders, even though the shareholders delegate uh, their authority. And shareholders never can, you know, in a really large organization, so um, you need to delegate. What's the big deal? So I thought that this was, um, you know, always wonderful when Ray Weiss comes up with these um, giant creative and practical leaps, but it didn't seem to me to be a better description of the reality. And then, uh, at some point during the pandemic, I ran across a book called Institution Man by Nicholas Lehman, L-E-M-A-N-N, I think I think it's pronounced Lehman. Um, and this is from, um, this is from, I believe, chapter two of... Um, of Institution Man by Nicholas Lehman on the source sheet. It gives you a reference, uh, a, a site where this can be downloaded. Um, here's what Lehman says. The modern corporation and private property by Adolf Burrell had two central arguments. First, that a relatively small number of corporations had rapidly come to dominate the American economy. And second, that because these corporations had so many shareholders, AT&T had more than half a million of them, they represented, this is in bold for me, a whole a historically new kind of economic institution that was not under the control of its owners. Adam Smith's conception of the market no longer applied because the owners of businesses were no longer vigorous entrepreneurs. They were passive and distant from the enterprise. Bolded again, control lay in the hands of managers and directors who were not significant owners. There was not yet a theory or practice of economics or government big enough to encompass these developments. Okay, so here you have him saying that um, the right that Adolf Burl under, right, said that corporations are a new kind of institution, not under the control of the and we can put owners in quotation marks, right? The control is separate from ownership because the managers and directors control it, even though they are not significant significant owners, and there's no real theory to encompass this. But the one challenge to Burl's big ideas about corporations, one immediate challenge came from a Harvard Law professor named E. Merrick Dodd. Um, now, Dodd thought, uh, mistakenly, that Burl was complaining about the separation of control from shareholders. And understanding this to be Burl's position, Dodd then argued against it. He said, corporations, here I'm bolding again, had a broad social responsibility to their employers, their communities, uh, I think that should be to their, um, to their communities, to their employees, sorry, their employees, Think their, commu their communities, their customers, and the public, not merely an economic responsibility to their shareholders. The executives of the great new, new corporation should see that they are guardians of all the interests with which the corporation affects and not merely servant servants of its absentee owners. And the law should see to it that they should be, be permitted to follow this impulse to, um, to manage the corporation in the interests of their social responsibility for all stakeholders, uh, even if their shareholders objected. Okay, but this is not actually um, this is actually Burl's position. Um, Burl, by the time he writes the modern corporation and private property, he had moved away from any concern he may have had for shareholders. Um, and um, right, really, Burl agreed with Dodd, and he thought uh, he came to believe that um, this is my paraphrase that actually corporations were a way of preventing wealth from dominating the country. He was worried about um, democracy being hijacked by corporations 
with enormous wealth and the answer by people with enormous wealth and the answer was corporations had shareholder um, had ownership so divided because a there are tons of shareholders and because there are tons of different shareholders therefore imp- therefore control really reverts to the board of directors and because it's too large for a board and the board of directors is not are not managers they actually have to appoint a manager and so if you could just train uh, to some extent the directors and especially the managers to see themselves as administering the corporation in the interests of all share, share of all stakeholders including employees and not just of shareholders then the interest the influence of money of capital on this on society would in fact be greatly diminished um, now then at some point later uh, Milton Friedman comes along and writes an article which becomes enormously influential in which he argues that this is a mistake and actually corporations should be run um, it should be should be run exclusively in the interest of maximizing shareholder value and that theory becomes dominant both sociologically and legally uh, there's been a pushback recently the uh, a group called the business roundtable the group of uh, corporate managers issued a, a statement saying that they believe that in fact they should administer their corporations with a broader sense of interest than just shareholder value um, lots of people have pointed out that it that uh, managing the interest of shareholder value uh, leads uh, to right when sh- especially when shareholders are a highly uh, dynamic um, group where everything is being bought and sold um, leads to short-term decisions um, and in fact uh, Lehman argues that uh, to some extent Burl's uh, conception of the corporation um, led to its own demise um, because as managers who administered in the in the um, general interest did things like encouraging unionization, setting up pension funds, and setting up pension funds ended up re-aggregating capital and having, and having and creating a way in which the capital could control the corporation, uh, even though there were millions of owners, but they'd all aggregated themselves in the, uh, into, the, into these pension funds and eventually into hedge funds and things like that. Um, so Brill's conception of the corporation, um, both because of a practical change where it becomes much much easier for capital to aggregate again and for and for the ownership to actually control the corporation and um you know and simultaneously presumably not coincidentally the the rise of milton friedman's theories uh led to our current conception of the corporation now um this is true in general society that's particularly true as well um in the modern orthodox community and perhaps throughout the halakha community um and i'll talk about one other uh case um, it's not part of my original list, in which economics influences halakha. Uh, so the um, the course economics in Jewish law it, at the Yeshiva College for many years was taught by a truly wonderful um, human being, uh, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Levine of blessed memory, uh, who was a, a an economist, and people loved taking the class because you could learn Torah while in uh, while in college, and it was like you know it was, it was an integrated class. Uh, Rabbi Levine's doctoral work, I believe, if I'm correct, was about the the ways in which um, the minimum wage fails to uh, improve the prospects of low of low income workers, um, because his studies showed that uh, in fact the um, what happens what really what raising the minimum wage does is it makes jobs that would otherwise be entry level jobs for uh, people for low skilled people, which might um, both in the short term means they have those jobs in the long term and you know give them a ramp into a, a higher economic future, especially in a unionized workforce, um, become attractive to people uh, with a higher socioeconomic position. Um, you know, particularly um, teen- you know, summer jobs become attractive to uh, to upper middle class teenagers. Uh, now that that uh, conclusion has been challenged um, by a lot of economic literature um, since then, and I do not want to. Imagine that I can pass him the question of when and to what extent the minimum wage helps or harms the the people uh, that it's tr- that it's intended to help. Um, but what I, it does matter to me is that my sense is that if you ask like for the one thing that you know, really the one position that really dominated modern orthodox economic discourse for years, rabbinic discourse, halachic discourse, it was that halacha is opposed to the minimum wage. Um, but that's because Rabbi Levine was a student of Milton Friedman. Um, now, what I'm suggesting is that that's how almost all of us conceive of corporations. 
uh, in the Milton Friedman way. Again, not I don't want to caricature Milton Friedman, um, but um, but that idea that the corporations really are owned by their shareholders, and therefore uh, the managers and the directors at, right, are not allowed to consider any interests other than those of shareholders. Uh, that was Milton Friedman's idea. Uh, I have um, argued in a piece on uh, corporate cam campaign finance contributions that this is a problem for society uh, because it means that vast amounts of money are run amorally, not immorally, but amorally, right? um, and that we should permit, as the, uh, recent Supreme Court decisions have, in fact, um, have in fact uh, indicated that you know that we should allow perhaps the cons uh, corporations to be set up with explicit values um, and those values, and therefore administering anyone buying into that corporation is buying into money that is controlled by those values, and therefore the directors and managers would be, uh, would be instructed to consider the moral interests in terms of those values of the shareholders and not just the economic interests. Um, but that's not the way most corporations have perceived themselves, and that's why I thought that uh, Citizens United was a problem, because allowing corporations that don't have any moral interests to participate in political campaigns is allowing amorality to have a significant voice. Um, when I use mitzvah boyotarim bishlucho, that you should... Uh, you shouldn't delegate things to uh, things. You shouldn't delegate moral issues to agents who have no, uh, who, right, who have no moral discretion at all. But be that as it may, um, the point for our purposes is that um, our rejection of our intuitive rejection of Rabbi Weiss's claim that corporations have no halachic owners uh, is predicated, perhaps, on our understanding corporations in the way Friedman did as being administered solely in the interest of their shareholders, and therefore obviously the shareholders are the owners. But it seems to me very likely that Ray Weiss had uh, corporations explained to him um, by somebody who was a student of Burl and, uh, and Merrick Dodd. And in their world, where corporations in fact are not run in the interest of shareholders, and shareholders can't affect that, uh, right? shareholders just buy a share of the profit and loss, but they don't control uh, they don't. They don't control the profit and loss, and the corporation is not run with an exclusive aim towards profit and loss. So it makes perfect sense in that world to say that there is no real ownership. Or why this reason makes a lot of sense that way. Now that leaves aside the question of whether it's um, granting, granted that the ownership of corporations does not match classic um, precedent of ownership in halakhic literature. Uh, so we have a lot of ways of resolving that. One is to try and fit the uh, the corporation to some other kind of uh, some other pre-existing model, which is sort of what Rav Moshe does. Um, Rav Weiss's solution is really very radical because he ends up having the kind of corporations that are a new kind of person, um, right? They own themselves, and that person, uh, he argues, is neither Jewish nor non-Jewish, and their Jewishness and their Jewish their Jewishness and non-Jewishness. Uh, is independent of the person, the religious identities um, of the majority or significant percentage of shareholders because they are totally known persons, and so we don't know what Jews may have at all. Um, they're not chayiv and tariyagnesos, right? They, they can't be obligated as Jews, but they're not obligated as non-Jews either. Um, I suspect my wife will end up arguing. He tends to argue that they're bound by moral laws. Um, but it's very hard to figure out what that boundary is because it's not equivalent to Shevet Mitzvot Ben Ella. Uh, like, for example, is it forbidden for corporations to sell flesh taken from live animals? Is it forbidden for corporations to worship idols? Um, is it forbidden? You know, so he really doesn't give answers to these questions, and it would be fascinating if he ever works it out uh, in full because it seems like he'll have to develop some kind of notion of natural law. Um, you can also think about this in the, in the question that asked more popularly uh, about whether artificial intelligences uh, would be high in mitzvot, uh, or if you want to think whether extraterrestrials would be, uh, should be liable in mitzvot. Um, and this, to some extent, is uh, relevant to the debate about corporate personality and constitutional law. Um, but I think you know, that the question of what we should do once we acknowledge that there is a genuine gap such that precedent cannot be controlling. We can't just say, let's do what we always did, let's apply the rules exactly as they were uh, to corporations. So now you get into questions, I think, which are much more of ends, 
rather than means, right? What would be the best way to halachically control the corporation? Adolf Berl, at the end of his life, believed that he had tamed the corporation uh, in various in various ways. It might be that halacha should react differently to a corporation that exists in a regulatory environment, um, and as opposed to one that exists in a complete less, you know, in a environment that lets corporations run rampant. It might be. Uh, I tend to think that Rabbi Weiss's description of the halakhic status of a corporation would have been true uh, in the, let's say, the early 50s, uh, when the ideas of uh, God and Burl Pass were dominant. Um, John Kenneth Walbrook was a, you know, a Thomas Hever uh, of, of Burl in this regard. So many, many famous people held these positions and presumably had a great deal of, of influence, and it seems like in American history that there was a, you know, certainly in terms of employees, that corporations then had a more benign attitude. Uh, I think it's very hard once Friedman's position becomes ascendant to sustain a Ray Weiss's position, which is why it generates uh, such incredulity um, among the people I presented to now before you present Burl. Uh, maybe if the Business Roundtable pushback eventually gains um, more significant influence, Ray Weiss's position will seem more reasonable again. Um, but I hope that this is a useful example of demonstrating how uh, Assuming that you are convinced that I have correctly uh, understood the basis of uh, Rabbi Weiss's position, that was really it's really utterly impossible to understand the development of Alaska in this area without understanding the background economic theories. Um, but that understanding how Alaska's positions emerge from background economic theory uh, does not tell you necessarily uh, whether you ought to posture like them or not or uh, really what Halakha ought to be doing uh, in, account in, um, in assimilating uh, itself or in assimilating new realities into its legal and value structure. Uh, it just helps you understand how that happens and perhaps it helps you understand how any particular means you might adopt halakhically, uh, how that will relate to the ends that will result. The second example, um, I think useful in illustrating the interaction between economic theory uh, and halakha and the, the means and ends question is one I've dealt with it at great length in the series of podcasts on labor law, but we'll do it briefly here. Yerushalmi Bav Mashiach, 60, um, in the presumptive context of the statement that workers cannot be held to specific performance, uh, that if a worker agrees to a contract, you can't actually make him do the work. The most you can do is compel them to pay any damages that result from their not doing the work, and if in fact no damages result because you can hire somebody without difficulty to do the same work at the same salary, uh, or at a lower salary, then uh, there's no penalty at all. Um, so in the context of, um, of that statement, there's a dispute between Rav and Rabbi Yochanan. Rav quotes the Pasuk, that Jews are my avadim, says God, uh, only my avadim. Um, as a claim that Jews can't buy each other. Now, this is obviously contains an irony with all of the approach ever to Israel. The laws of Jewish slaves contain an irony that the whole Torah is built around God redeeming the Jews from slavery, and I think that's intended. Um, but for our purposes, we're just going to say that Rav says that the ban against Jews, Jews selling themselves to each other as slaves, or buying, we'll see, we'll see how I'm framing it, as opposed to buying each other as slaves, um, applies only when you do so in a way in which you can't back out of a contract. And therefore, unless you use the word every the Torah says that all contracts presumptively are not binding on employees. Um, whereas the Yochanan says, this text is actually about an every right? So it sounds like they diametrically oppose understandings. The Rav says that the text teaches you that you can't be an every and the Yochanan says we're just talking about an every right? Really um, very odd. So Gemara says in Afkimina, uh, the Yisraelis says Afkimina between these two positions as explained by the Yidid Nefesh, which I think is the simplest shot here. Um, and then we'll see, that I think that's also a shot of the Maharam and really the way we hold the Halakha. Um, says that the Afkimina between Rav and Rabbi Yochanan, as I told you, Rav, the contract is, is binding on neither parties. All contracts are, are at will on the part of both the employer and the, um, and the employee. Um, Contract just governs the relationship while the work is done, not any future relationship. Whereas according to Rabbi Yochanan, um, if an evid, uh, the the worker can back out, but the worker can enforce the contract 
on the employer, even if the employer no longer needs the work uh, done or, or would rather hire uh, somebody else. Um, so you never explains what's the real friend's position, right? Or how does the real friend get to the idea that the, that the worker can back out but the employer cannot? So he does it by analogy to Ebony Reef. He says in Ebony Reef, the worker can buy their way out of the rest of the contract, but the employer uh, cannot dismiss the worker uh, as such. Um, certainly not just by returning the money. That's a more complicated topic for our purposes. Um, what's the argument between Robin and Gilson? So I have explained, I think, the simplest way of understanding it um, is that this is parallel to a dispute on the Supreme Court in the New Deal era. In many ways, goes back to fundamental political theory, political and economic theory at Tangle here, which is whether we assume that um, all freely negotiated contracts actually represent the wills of the parties, the parties, and therefore to interfere with freedom of contract is to interfere with freedom, uh, or whether conversely, we assume that generally, often presumptively, a contract in which one person agrees to do work for another are negotiated from a position of economic inequality, and therefore do not actually reflect the will of the employee. The employee would rather work for themselves because the Gemara and Bavmashia says, Bavli and Bavmashia says, there's always a dignity cost in working for somebody else as opposed to yourself. Um, so all contracts of employment are presumptively contracts negotiated under conditions of inequality, um, at least in the absence of unions, where um, that's my contribution, where work where labor can aggregate in the same way capital does. Uh, so the reason of Rav is that all well, what Halakha does in the context of labor law is it makes all contracts at will, and therefore every contract is in principle renew renewed at every moment, and therefore. Uh, everyone is acting freely. Everyone only works in accordance with contracts that they wish to be part of right now, and we have no concern for, uh, for right for any kind of conception of structural inequality. Um, right, that's not that's not our issue at all. We just guarantee freedom of contract, and that's what free freedom from slavery is. And the girlfriend comes along and says, "No, right, that's actually not. We're not understanding what's happening. Actually, employers are sort of everybody agrees because they're giving up their freedom in a way they would not." Um, and therefore, we have to protect them. And so we make contracts binding on employers, even though they're not they're binding on employees. Um, so I think that the Marami Rotenberg in uh, Sefer Shina Bereshitim, number 640, um, follows the pretty clearly and really says this in the strongest possible way. What he says is that the reason that we say that a worker cannot be bound with a polo chogerba bachati hayom, that's the presumptive context of our machlokes, that a worker can back out even at midday in a mid-contract, uh, is that we derive this rule from Ebedee's Reef, just like an Ebedee's Reef can buy their way out of the contract, so too a worker can simply stop working and you know, not take any further salary. Uh, but then, Ron says, because it derives it not just from analogy to Ebedee's Reef, but by Kalvachomer from Ebedee's Reef, that really the worker is in the same position as the Ebedee's Reef, just that it evidently has violated something by selling themselves. And here's the way he frames it. If an evidently who violated the prohibition and transgressed because he sold some Israel Avadim to me and not Avadim to Avadim, and his body is acquired, and yet we are lenient with him, meaning that we allow him to, uh, right, we have whatever halakha that are lenient for an evidently, uh, maybe he can buy his way out in this case, but the employer can't. Um, so, Kalvachomer we apply it to a worker. So, a worker has all the advantages of an evidently because. He's coming from the same position of inequality, but he has an additional advantage, right, because he is not a sinner. Whereas an Ebedee possibly, right, the way the Ramah frames it, except that an Ebedee who sold themselves only as an absolute last resort, um, is, um, has done something wrong, and therefore they don't get all the protections of the law. Uh, the case I like to give as the extreme illustration of this is that an Ebedee can leave only um, if they repay their, um, their the advance they received, uh, right, the money they received in advance to buy them, they have to repay it in cash. They can't say, you know what, I won't work the next three years and I'll owe you half the money. But there is a position, uh, halakhically, that um, if a worker was paid in advance and now wishes to quit mid-contract and cannot repay the advance, they can say, I owe you the money. Uh, right, that would be an extreme example of giving a worker more advances than every advance which seems to me that this really comes down to the fundamental question of how we understand freedom of contract or how we understand the relative economic circumstances of negotiation of labor and capital. 
that Rob's position is that we assume that contracts are fully negotiated and actually express the rules of the parties. We don't presume any kind of structural inequality that means that one party is acting against their will and can't actually consent. And Rabbi Yochanan says um, that actually we do assume that uh, we presume that uh, contracts in which one person subordinates their will to another are not freely negotiated and do not actually represent the rules of the party, of the will of the party, and therefore we, as the law, have to come in and balance the scale. And my third example, moving towards copyright, is a halakhic competition law. Uh, here I built off a presentation by Mark Katz, who's a Yoni lawyer for uh, Davies Ward Phillips and Weinberg. Um, this is a presentation he gave at the Jewish Lawyers Network Law Conference. Uh, in 2013, but he also gave the presentation for the summit, which I'm very grateful for, to the summit at Mizrach in 2015. Um, in this presentation, he sets out guiding principles of modern competition law, uh, which are number one, that com competition generally enhances consumer welfare and leads to economic efficiency, that ease of entry is the fundamental component of competitive markets, and the goal of the law is to protect competition and not competitors. Uh, so we have to sum this up, I would say, right? We had, um, the way it's framed that modern competition law is about the end, the consumer, and therefore, right, so that we, competition enhances consumer welfare, and therefore, we always want there to be competition, at least uh, that leads to economic efficiency. We want ease of entry, ease of entry is what right, enables competition, and that I think that the key values formulation is that the goal of the law is to protect competition and not competitors, so we're always on the side of the consumer. Um, and he points out there are places where Jewish law uh, constricts competition, um, that we have a category called Yori Lepov Umnat Kavero, maybe Hasidah Gvul, all sorts of, of terms are used in Halakha that seem to be restrictive of competition. And so it might be that we have broad contrast between modern competition law and, um, and Jewish ethics. And that's how many people uh, framed it. Um, Dr. Levine, as I recall, used it generally framed it that Halakha accepts the economic principle that competition uh, in competition is good for the consumer, but sometimes imposes moral obligations because you have to think about the welfare of the uh, of the competitor. But I think that's not um, not entirely fair. Uh, we're not going to go into the details of the specific positions of the competitors in competition, but I want to give one example, uh, which is that there is a um, there there is a rivash which says that all the halachic restrictions on competition law do not apply when competition will lower prices or improve quality for the consumer, and Ramban responds no, but competition always improves uh, either quality or price. So if you, that were the case, there'd be no restrictions on competition. So you might think, aha! So the right so the rush the rivash is focused entirely on the consumer. And the Ramban's response is that we care about the competitor as well. Um, but it's not entirely true, because actually Ramban argues that you can accomplish the same ends for the consumer through regulation, and therefore you don't need to allow free competition, because you can just legislate that the existing, uh, that the existing business should sell it at the price that it would have to sell at if there were competition or the like. Now, we can debate right, which of these positions we find most convincing on an, on an economic point of view, but to understand what Ramban is saying, you have to understand that Ramban believes that government regulation can achieve the same results as a, um, as in that particular context, the free market. And learn from that, there are many places. Um, I wrote in my trip from 2015 um, that I mis often mistakenly conflated free markets with competitive and efficient markets. Uh, free, which is to say unregulated markets, are often rapidly dominated by the powerful, and converted into monopolies, regulation is necessary to maintain competitive and efficient markets, which are, which are economically superior. So you don't have to follow Ramban that in every case, right, the Ramban seems to be claiming you can accomplish by regulation the same ends as a market. That is not, I think, economically accepted nowadays, but you can understand, um, and this to some extent also is the difference between Canadian and American law, that uh, sometimes competition Sometimes regulation is necessary to sustain competition, uh, and sometimes perhaps can accomplish the same ends without the same losses. Uh, but also we should be think, but also we should be thinking about ends other than total economic growth. This is part of the critique of of NAFTA um, and general globalization, which increases economic efficiency but has costs. 
in terms of stability, social costs. Um, we're discovering now, right, it has costs in terms of the fragility of the supply chain as well. Um, often there are cases where protectionism is in the interest of a segment of the community. And so if you don't control, right, if you, if you only have part of the economy, maybe, right, so maybe protectionism is good for you, even though free trade is good for the world as a whole. Um, right? There are all sorts of ways in which an assumption that any time you want to regulate it's because you have values other than economic uh, is really not true. And so I think that this apposition, which is often presented, that there's, we presume the free market is the best result, and then, um, right, and then sometimes halacha imposes morality on top of that, uh, is probably, you know, as someone pointed out to me in the, during the shir, I, I don't think I did this well in the shir at ASBI, it's a caricature of Milton Friedman, you know, pretty much everyone understands that uh, a totally unregulated market just ends up with the strong developing monopoly power and eventually abusing it. Um, so everyone understands there's some need of regulation, um, and therefore when halacha imposes regulations, you have to understand why is halacha doing it. It's doing it because it, in fact, concedes that, no, if we, let, if we didn't regulate, that would be better economically, but we're making a moral claim, or is it doing it because it thinks this is better, um, that, this, that this is better economically for whichever sector, maybe for the Jewish community specifically, if the Jewish community represents you know, a developing industry or things like that, um, or maybe there's a particular case where, uh, where, where you know, perhaps with halacha thinks that there is, or the people making the specific halacha regulations thinks that economic inequality had gone too far and there's a redistributive impact. There are all sorts of ways um, in which it's really, I think, um, oversimplified to just say that um, any halachic attempt at regulating, regulating competition per se means that, it, that it's reflecting values uh, as opposed to a Western system, which only reflects, uh, which reflects economic efficiency, because many regulations, um, many regulations are necessary for economic efficiency, and you know, and, and over time, we've recognized that there are uh, value, there are values that should be adopted in economic theory as well, in terms of the good of society, that that um, stability of expectations and a certain degree of of um, non extreme. Not you know non extreme distribution of wealth things like that maybe uh, goods that economic theory should account for as well. Uh, in my chuba, I framed it like you know, say you could create myths right. One is, is a myth that Adam and Chava immediately after being expelled from the garden live in a, a free market Eden, and all regulation you know and so our goal should always be to try and um, you know right, really, that that free market what I call the invisible hand of the market right would create optimal optimal growth and that's the history. Of, uh, of the world until Nimrod comes along and starts imposing things by power. And so the only, the only role of power in, in economics is to try and counterbalance the, uh, the unfortunate distortions introduced by Nimrod because the state of nature is, a, is an, an efficient uh, competitive free market. And the other one is it you know, takes the model uh, as being not that Nimrod comes in and distorts a previously free market, but that the first economic circumstance we have is that Cain and Hevel own different goods and the result of their attempting to try and figure out how we get together when we have divided, when we each have need for each other's goods, is that Cain kills Hevel. So, right, norm, right, and then presumably Cain gets all of Hevel's stuff if he wants it, depend, you know, unless God inter, intervenes. And so we learn from that that actually, uh, in the state of nature, what you have is monopolies in for, you know, in, uh, imposed by force. And so our goal, the goal is to assume that there are always um, deformities in the market uh, caused by force, and we have to constantly maintain unlimited regulatory authority in order to counteract the inevitable injustices and undesirable outcomes created by private power imbalances. And obviously, which perspective you have as to how the world developed will affect um, how you construct economic halacha. Do you see regulation as a last resource, or do you presume that halacha assume that a managed economy, uh, managed and efficient economy, is possible, um, and so forth? Um, okay, right, so that's example three. And so then we move into copyright. Um, so the the book in this field, right, is from Maimonides to Microsoft: The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print, uh, by Neil Weinstock, Nathaniel, and David Nimmer. I'm very happy that I have a footnote in the final edition of this book. I think on page nine. Perhaps I'm wrong. Um, and what they say right here, I'm quoting from, uh, I believe, um, chapter two. Right, they're interested in the detailed history of copyright, which is not the purpose of this year, 
And one of the interesting things is, of course, that uh, for most of the history of copyright law, which essentially begins after printing, so it, you know, doesn't, it's not halakha Moshe Misenai, um, the Jewish cases all involve Torah. And then in the 20th century, as we get into um, software, it becomes uh, it, it, the question of whether Jewish copyright law extends to other issues um, becomes a significant issue. And that's why Microsoft sues uh, in Bethin, because it wants the Haredi community to abide by uh, anti-piracy laws. Um, it's a really interesting question, but for most of its history, it deals with uh, it deals with copying uh, Torah books, and it says, "Look, you know that the um, that um, basically halacha has to deal with the same issues that secular law does, and emerges out of addressing the same issues." Jewish, this is a quote: "Jewish and secular copyright law share common origins. Both grew from early efforts of jurists and ruling authorities." to grapple with the central challenge posed by the technology of print, how to give publishers of worthy books sufficient security for them to undertake the significant investment required to bring a book to print without being undercut by a rival publisher who reprints the same book. Um, prior to the advent of print, Jewish law encouraged the widespread copying, sharing, and dissemination of works of Jewish learning and literature. Uh, here I bold, but with the invention of printing technology, rabbinic decisors, like their secular and papal counterparts, sought to carve out a legal regime that would encourage the printing and widespread dissemination of books of Jewish learning and liturgy, a regime that required a balance between enabling the first to print a particular book to recover his investment in that printing, while still fostering the availability of books at a reasonable price, typically by allowing others to print and sell the book after a certain period of time. Um, right, so Halakha is responding to the same questions. Now, it has its own, uh, its own mechanisms for dealing with that, but the question is, when we figure out how, when we try to think about how to construct um, halachic copyright law going forward, um, so we have one is we have this sudden shift from just Torah to other things, and that should mean that that limits the extent to which precedents um, precedents are binding. Secondly, we have the the constant introduction of new media, which create new economic um, paradigms, which mean that means the relationship between means and ends is constantly being changed. So it seems to me that really a more useful framework for discussing Jewish copyright law, which you know all of us understand has a, essentially no, um, really no biblical roots and essentially is constructed uh, you know in the last several hundred years, and it doesn't really have that much precedential value because most of it is constructed in uh, in ad hoc ways that are not necessarily binding precedent. So I want to argue that a probably a beginning framing for thinking about it, if we're interested in how we should make the law, uh, which is not necessarily the same question as if you were sitting on a bait and had to, and Microsoft sues how you adjudicate a specific case, um, because when you're deciding cases, um, you're more bound by precedent than you are when you're considering how to make a law that will then tell people how, what they should expect in uh, future cases, um, that we should be thinking about ends what do we want Jewish copyright law to accomplish? And secondly, we should be very, very clear for ourselves as best we can, understanding the you know, the most uh, you know the most convincing economic theories we can find as to what the impact of specific means will be. So I think that when we think about Jewish copyright law, as opposed to focusing on questions like if one Beitin issues a cherem uh, on anybody who recopy who reprints this book. Is that harem binding on people in another jurisdiction, on people who see themselves as members of a separate community? Is there a presumptive harem? Right, all sorts of issues like that. The real questions are, uh, what are what is our interest? Our interest in fostering more books or in fostering intellectual creativity? Uh, with a high, we, you know, we want a higher entrance to barrier to publication, um, or do we want everyone to be able to publish whatever they want? Um, if you know, how do we? Um, what happens if somebody owns intellectual property and doesn't want to share it? We want to have disincentives um, for uh, for for uh, people doing things like that, which you know relate to. We can set up mo the models for publishing uh, academic works uh, as opposed to open source models. Um, we talk about the difference between the Barilan Responsive Project and Safaria, uh, for example. Uh, is our goal more popular education or a more learned scholarly elite? Right, which would we prioritize? Uh, do we want authors to be able to support themselves through their uh, through their publication of books, or do we dafka want to make sure that scholarship is produced by people who have to 
in other ways uh, interact with the community. So I think those questions of ends are really important. And then we have to think of like what, what sort of halakhic copyright policy would generate what would generate those ends, recognizing um, this is all right there, that we don't necessarily control the market. There might be, if we set up certain regulations, all we would do would be encouraging uh, broader publishers to come into the market and wipe Jewish publishers out. Do we want that? Do we not want that? Are we protectionist about Jewish publishers in these areas, in, in, in these, um, in, um, in, in, the, um, in these areas, right? All those sorts of questions we have to be really clear about rather than just, I think, following um, precedent mechanically. Some of those will be addressed in um, a hopefully forthcoming podcast where I'll do the uh, second year I did this past Shabbat, which is uh, the advantages and risks of monetizing Torah. But I hope that this year has really made the point that uh, when we're dealing with Hilchot Choshen Mishpat, um, especially, yeah, but I think that's, I, I think but that's a much better argument that most areas of Choshen Mishpat have deal with uh, like circumstances that have so far changed and where the right to laws really has so little immediate application um, but you can just take it as these examples if you want, and specifically, hopefully, tending towards copyright, is that you really can't do these halachot unless you have a good understanding of the underlying economics, and my understanding may not be sufficient, um, but we should you know, ask that question when somebody says this is the halacha and they make the argument based entirely on precedence, uh, you have to test, right? Do, is, uh, do they understand the reasoning behind those precedents uh, well enough to be able to un to consider how they should apply in contemporary circumstances, and in general, uh, if we want to regenerate, um, which is Israel to some extent already has an ongoing, um, has an ongoing uh, some tradition at least within the Haredi sector of how to handle certain kinds of economic questions. Um, to a smaller extent, I think that that uh, more insular Orthodox communities in the United States have such, but the modern Orthodox community and you know, certainly doesn't have any kind of live tradition of how to adjudicate economic issues. And I don't think that anybody has yet generated a Torah model that would be useful outside an our Orthodox community. And I think those are the sorts of things we should be thinking about. Thank you again to ASBI for hosting the original share. And thank you for listening.